0: today's a good day in the life of our church. Uh, Every year, we kind of set aside a day uh, to kind of hit the reset button on what we are about. We call it Share Day. Uh, And our Share Pastor Stu puts that together. And every other year, we'll do something called Share Week. And so today actually kicks off a week of activities that we would encourage you to plug into as a grow group or as an individual. Every day there's an opportunity for you to plug in, uh, whether it's working in a homeless shelter, whether it's working in the food bank, all kinds of things are gonna be happening this week that you and I are a part of as we become the hands and the feet of Jesus and and the ears and the mouth to hear and to speak. And today we kind of kick that off with an opportunity to be reminded of how god has called every one of us to share that gospel that he has put in our heart that good news that we've embraced God's called every one of us to share that. And and it's kind of awkward. This is a weird time that we're living in. And and we're sometimes overwhelmed by the challenge of how do I communicate that gospel? Well, today we're going to have some resources that kind of point us in the right direction and talk to us about how we can live that out. In fact, we have as a guest speaker today, um, uh, one of our partners, a guy that that Stu came to know uh, a couple of years back, and we're excited that he is able to be with us today and uh, he's going to be sharing with us in fact, you can learn more about him if you'll come on up. Uh, you are can learn more about him at a website, apologetics.com. He has a website and uh, kind of asks and answers some of those tough questions. He hosts a, uh, a radio program on, online uh, every week to address those, uh, those questions that many of us have. He'll be addressing some of those questions later on uh, this evening. But we're excited to have Harry Edwards with us. You come and share with us, brother.
1: Thank you Dr. Marr for that warm introduction. I was telling the first service that they were my favorite service, but uh, I think I changed my mind now. You guys are my favorite service, yeah. Greetings from California. Uh, it's, it's so nice to be able to travel anywhere and uh, know that there are brothers and Christians that welcome you and love you. So I feel honored and I'm delighted to be here to share it with you. Um, this morning. So our task is how do we share Jesus in a cancel culture? That's what we have to do nowadays, right? So um, if you're like me, I listen to a lot of Christian leaders, Christian social uh, commentaries, and you might hear the term nowadays, but they would say that we live in a cancel, or we we live in a post-Christian world, and what that really means is that they're saying that Christianity's influence has now declined, kind of like how it's declined in Europe and in Canada, and it's going to move down south. Now, that doesn't mean the church is not growing. In fact, it is growing. It's just not apparently growing in the U.S. anymore, but... You know, I'm an optimist and I I really had a hard time believing that until one day I found myself uh, in line at the DMV trying to renew my registration. And uh, I must have looked like a a Christian to this lady, but uh, she decided to strike up a conversation with me. And it didn't take very long before we were kind of like high-fiving each other and really excited that we're both believers. But something strange happened in the process. While we were having our conversation, I, I sort of noticed that our voices, the, the, the volume of our voices started to go low, lower and lower and lower as we talked more about Christian things. And then I realized, it dawned on me, oh, wait a minute. I think we are hushing our voices because we are afraid to get canceled. And and, and that, it, it, I had to pause for a minute and think about where I was while all of this was happening because I found myself in Fullerton, California, which represents, which ranks at the top 0.2% of, um, of Christian counties if, if you're going to compare all of the 3,000 plus counties in the U.S., And Orange County ranks at the top 0.2%. And I'm thinking, wow, even here, we're afraid to talk about Jesus. And then it got me thinking, we certainly are living in a topsy-turvy world, aren't we? Uh, You turn on the news and uh, you, you know, in the name of anti-racism, we become more racist. In the name of women's rights, we become more anti-feminine. Uh, In promoting equality, we become more unequal, so on and so forth. Um, Well, what's what's happening is because there's a growing generation that is now maturing and the oldest of them are now entering the workforce and they've become uh, more influential whether we like it or not. Now, the, the next set of data points I do want to share, but not, not because I want to disparage Gen Z. In fact, uh, I actually think there's greater hope for them than their predecessors. Um, but uh, I, I mentioned some of these things to hopefully challenge us, to get us excited that there's a mission field out, out there, literally just across, you know, just amongst our neighborhood. uh, And you don't need to go out and do overseas missions to be able to uh, reach others for the gospel now. Gen Z are those who are born roughly between 1996 and 2015. Um, They sort of live for the now uh, with... Not a lot of thought to consequences. Uh, About a third of them consider spiritual life important and fewer still think it's worth pursuing. And um, the the basis for a lot of their beliefs really is founded on moral relativism. And what that is, it's a belief that says there is no right or wrong and you can't know whether truth with a capital T exists. And so, essentially, you make your own, you create your own set of values. Whatever feels good to you, that's what you follow. And and so, you can imagine how um, a cancel culture could thrive in this kind of uh, generation. Joe Dallas, the author of Christians in a Cancel Culture, defines cancel culture this way. It's a movement to redefine certain standard beliefs and either convert or silence those who oppose those redefinitions. So it, it, unfortunately, during this time in our um, culture, it's, it's coming together and some of the effects are just devastating. So what really is the problem, right? Well, I think the problem actually is we need to look inward. We need to look at us. Um, I think the church in general um, here in the West, we've lost focus a bit. Um, we have the message, but we're not so sure what, what it is. Uh, and then equally uh, bad is we've forgotten how to communicate that message. So um, how do we solve it? Well, I know what we shouldn't do, and that is rely on government, although we need government. But a lot of us think that if we just put the right people in power, um, then our culture will turn around, right? But. I mean, some of you are uh, old enough to know we, we've cycled through the different uh, parties and yet Christianity has continued to lose its influence. So it can't be government. Well, what about education? Surely, right? If we just teach the right things, then the proper behavior comes about. Well, I'm not sure about that either. And We've actually been very, very good, the church has been very, very good with education. For instance, take for instance Harvard, uh, founded in the you know, mid 1600s. I don't know if you knew this, but Harvard came about from um, a Sunday school in a Baptist church, and their mission was to train uh, pastors and evangelists to reach the world. That's Harvard for you, in fact, um, Let me read the uh, original mission statement uh, that they posted on their gates. It said, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to, to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation, as all sound knowledge and learning. It's amazing, right, how far they've drifted away from that. By uh, the mid-1800s, we had over 200-something Christian universities and colleges, um, very fewer of the secular kind. Uh, And yet, it seems like our influence is still declining. In fact, as late as uh, uh, 2002, uh, the CCCU, the Coalition of, uh, of College, no, Coalition of, uh, for the Council of Colleges and, and Christian Universities, they said that um, that up until tw- uh, 2002, 68% of them were still growing, compared to about 3% uh, of their secular counterparts. So, like I said, we've been very good at that. Um, In fact, Nancy Percy, who is a Christian educator, uh, thinks that uh, uh, it has become commonplace to say that Americans are embroiled in a culture war over conflicting moral standards. But we must remember that morality is always derivative. It stems from an underlying worldview. And then she adds, uh, we have to be willing to engage the underlying cognitive war. So there's that war language there that we need to do battle apparently. And by the way, I would recommend her books. They're, they're, they're great, but um, I'm just not sure that uh, our main priority and focus should be exclusively Christian education, if not done properly, all right? And we'll get more into that. Uh, so we have to be careful uh, about the idea that if we just get the right beliefs, all right, the right doctrine, then behavior follows. We have to be careful about that. Of course, we need to have the right beliefs, of course. And we have to get the right behavior to go along with that. But we can't, it's a mistake to think that one drives the other. In fact, it could be both, it could be both. Like I said, we've been good at that, so that even, As late as the 1960s, only 2% of Americans claimed to be atheists. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, And uh, even today, only about 12 to 14% of Americans claim to be secularists. And there's reports to suggest that uh, there's even more worshipers today uh, than in the past, all right? So some of our churches are vibrant with activity. But why is our influence declining, and when I say influence, try to imagine this. So if, if most of the West identifies as Christian, and, and we still wonder why influence is declining, try to imagine the LGBT group. They're not even 3% of the population, and yet they've been successful in passing laws. Uh, they control a large part of the media. Um, and it seems to be normalized nowadays, you know, some, some of their lifestyles. Uh, it's interesting what they've done, and they're only 3% of the population. Compare that also with the Jews, the Jewish community. They're less than 3% of the U.S. population, and yet um, they've managed to control a large portion of finance, media education. So you, you wonder, what, what, what's going on with evangelicals, right? Well, I think I want to I wanna mention that um, one of the reasons why we're struggling is because of this, and, and some of the reasons why young people are leaving is because 80% of them say that Christians are judgmental. They're not going to step foot in the church when they think they're going to be judged already. They feel that, and and 85% of them say that Christians are hypocritical. So apparently Christians do uh, what they ought not to do and don't do what they ought to do. Um, According to the Gallup poll, uh, this was uh, just March, a few months ago, it said that for the first time in US history, Church membership has dropped below 50%. So we're really being canceled uh, because we've lost our credibility. Uh, you, you can uh, take the scripture in 1 Timothy 3 5 that says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Um, so they're aware of that, you know. Things are not connecting, they're not making sense. C.S. Lewis says that when we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Well, there's gotta be another way. How can we fix this cancel culture? Uh, We know, like I said, government doesn't really work. We know education, the way we're doing it right now, doesn't work. What I'd like to do is, I'd like to propose four things that if we do them diligently, if we practice them, I believe that we will at least set some kind of a a foundation for uh, moving forward and and, and getting, and, and reclaiming our influence again for Christ. The first thing we have to do, and it's the most important thing, is pray, prayer. When I was putting together my slides, I thought I'd put that in the end just for, um, you know, effect, because I think it's the most important, but I go, then you might think that it's the least out of the four. So I put it at the very f- first thing. It's pr- I was um, interviewing a uh, philosopher who teaches at Baylor one time. I asked him if he could offer any explanation for why our world is becoming more secular, becoming more unchristian. Or at least in, in my observation, it seems like it's becoming more uh, anti-Christian, right? Um, and e- even before I finished uh, posing my question, he just blurted out prayer. And so I'm waiting, right? I'm trying to be respectful, because I, I thought maybe he'd give me a long treatise on prayer. He just said prayer, and then he just said, we have direct access to the God of the universe who can supply all our needs, who does miracles, who created everything from nothing, and, 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 and we're still in this state. Well, that's because we're not praying. We're not actually asking God to help us fix our culture, our nation. And it's so simple, right? It's so simple. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm reminded of um, the story when Jesus, after the transfiguration, he was, um, you know, walking with his disciples to do ministry. And then this father comes out and and pleads with Jesus to heal his son. Well, the the son uh, had an unclean spirit, and he pleaded with Jesus. And uh, in fact, to the point where the, the, and I love the prayer of of, uh, the father. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I I love that honest prayer. And so, Jesus obviously heals the boy. The unclean spirit comes out. And so, after after that incident, the disciples said, Uh, Jesus, we've been trying, we've been trying to get that unclean spirit out of the boy. What happened? And Jesus said, there are certain things that can only be done through prayer. So I wonder, this cancel culture that we're in, this argument culture, as Deborah Tannen would say it, is this something that could only be fixed or redeemed through prayer? James 1 says that we should ask for wisdom. That's another thing, I know we're not praying, otherwise a lot of us would be more wise than we are already, right? There are certain prayers that if you pray, the answer is yes, no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. The answer is yes, Lord, if I need wisdom, give me wisdom, and then if you, the text says if you pray with faith all that is is you expect God to give you wisdom. So I know we're not praying. I just know that. And I'm preaching to myself too, all right? The second most important thing we need to do is we need to cancel ourselves. All right, I take this from Matthew 16 uh, when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And I'm not suggesting that we, um, we uh, lose our identity over this, right? We're not doormats. We're not that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We actually find our identity when we are connected with him. Because if we call ourselves Christians, right, we're like little Christs. That's literally what Christians mean. And we have to acknowledge we do live in an upside-down kingdom. It's kind of strange, right? If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be rich, you have to be poor. If you want to be strong, you have to be weak. So, yeah, let's, let's learn to cancel ourselves, all right? Uh, the third thing is, which is connected to, to the second is, we need to be kind in our speech. So, Deborah Tannen is a communications expert, and um, he wrote, she wrote the book... Uh, the argument culture. So apparently we're living in an argument culture where everything seems to be uh, debatable. You know, you mention one thing and your uh, uh, friend will have to mention the extreme thing of what you don't believe, all right? And uh, that's how we start uh, this process of canceling each other. It's like we, uh, we, we have an issue, we have a topic, but we decide to take... Uh, the extremes of both, which really no one believes. Or or we create weak positions, uh, weak versions of each other's positions, right? Which is called a straw man. Uh, how does that manifest sometimes in the church? Uh, sometimes we have the old earthers versus the uh, young earthers, you know? One will say... Um, well, you just don't believe the Bible, and then the others will say, "Well, uh, you you just hate science." Or how about the uh, pro-life versus the pro-choice? Um, we say um, murderers, you know. We and then the others will say, "Well, you're just anti-feminist or uncaring." Or how about the maskers versus the anti-maskers? The Vaxers versus the anti, we, we do this to ourselves, right? You can imagine some of those conversations on YouTube, on uh, Twitter, on other social media platforms. Uh, just the extreme positions are taken and, and, and um, truth in the process is just lost. James, again, reminds us, right, that everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Maybe if something is bothering us, maybe we wait 24 hours before we respond. That might be uh, slow enough, right? We must be slow to become angry. Uh, Jude, there's a, Jude's only one chapter, so uh, if if you want to feel good about yourself about reading a book, read Jude and go, yep, I read a book today, yeah. Yeah, Jude. No, sometimes we forget, right? I I, I love, so James, I quoted James. uh, That's a brother of Jesus. uh, Another brother of Jesus, sometimes we overlook, is Jude. I love what Jude is saying, actually, in the beginning. He goes, watch out for these uh, um, false teachers, right? It's a message for all of us, but it's interesting how he described the false teachers as babblers, you know the purveyors of lies and just just talk nonsense kind of talk it's kind of interesting um, but uh, he Jude actually says don't don't even spend any effort in trying to talk about things you don't understand now that 's my version that's my translation, but uh, there's a passage in verse eight in Jude where uh, he's saying um Even Michael, the archangel, and the devil were disputing over the body of Moses. So he said, avoid those (laughs) kinds of talks because you just don't know. Uh, We we don't have the original reference for that, so scholars could debate over that. But it's just interesting. I think the lesson there is just Just don't talk about things you really don't know, or or how about take some time to study them first. But don't try to be an expert on something that's really difficult, and know that some of these things are difficult. Uh, The fourth one is um, to know that you are fully equipped and ready to act as God's ambassadors. One of my favorite verses is found in 2 Peter 1.3. Sometimes when I'm feeling down, I go to this passage, and it's a great reminder. In 2 Peter 1.3, Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So put a pin on the word godliness, we'll, we'll talk more about that. So you can imagine, right, if your pastor's here at South Cliff, might ask you to uh, help teach in the ESL program here. Uh, you have everything you need to be able to successfully teach in the ESL program. You can't make the excuse, uh, well, I need to brush up on my English, then then I'll sign up. No, uh, you have everything that you You have more than everything. Uh, or if maybe uh, your music, your worship pastor asks you to join the choir, um, you might say, oh, I'd love to join the choir, but uh, not until I get voice lessons, you know. Or maybe uh, your uh, share pastor asks you to um, teach a Bible study, and you go, you know, I'd Stu, I'd really love to do that, uh, but not until I get my college, uh, my, my uh, Bible degree, you know. No, according to, for, Peter, you you have everything that you need. Now, all of these things, like further education, training, experience, those are all great, and we need to strive for that, but that shouldn't be the go-to in terms of, like, um, uh, before you actually do things. I would say do what you're called and then do it simultaneously, whether that's more training, study, knowledge, all of those things are good but that can't be the first response. Um, <clears throat> so, sometimes we forget, right? But uh, the, these verses kinda at least remind me, uh, are we doing our part as ambassadors? Are we representing the kingdom? Matthew 5:16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2, 12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. And one of my favorites is in Romans, right? Salvation has come to the Gentiles, that's us, so as to make Israel jealous. And I don't know if sometimes you think of your life as something to be jealous of, but it seems like God's giving us permission to do that. Uh, we have to lead good lives uh, according to his will, right? It's, it's, it's all about doing. Christianity has always been about doing. I just want to share uh, a little bit, um, which I'm convinced it's, it's, it's a word that uh, we often miss, we overlook, and that's the whole uh, godliness. That's the, uh, the word godliness. You know the Greek had to you know they had to kind of erect that word. They had to put it together. They didn't have a word for godliness. Uh, it's eusebeia in Greek. We translate that into English as godliness and dictionary said, says that godliness is piety. But it is not piety. If you dig a little bit deeper, that word, like I said, is a made-up word in the Greek, you meaning well, and sabas meaning to perform the actions appropriate to the gods. So if you put it together, it's good actions appropriate to the gods. If you apply it to Christianity, it's good works perform uh, appropriate to Yahweh, to God, to our God. So, uh, I, I know I was really encouraged when I uh, learned that, and um, there's not a, a lot of text, but so if you're into research, do a little bit more research, but once you start reading scripture and know that godliness is actually a, an action, that it's just a word and deed co- put together, I think it'll enrich your devotional life. Um, it's not... It's not just piety. In fact, um, Paul would encourage Timothy a lot to train for godliness. Uh, If it's piety, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my reading how you train for piety. Um, But to train for action, that makes a lot of sense. I want to end with this um, piece of art It's one of my favorites, called Starry Night. It was painted by Van Gogh, 1889. Many of us know this. It's uh, currently displayed at the uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York, which I plan to visit one of these days. But I don't know if many of us uh, know that Van Gogh um, studied to be a pastor, to be a priest. His father was a priest. His uncle was a priest. His grandfather was a priest. He actually comes from a prominent family. And uh, so after his studies, he did serve uh, in a mining village in the Borinage area in Belgium. But uh, he was actually let go. He was fired. And his father did not you know, support him or did not uh, defend him. But the reason that was given by the synod was that um, uh, he was unbecoming of a priest, or they, they didn't like his look because he was helping and serving the poor in that area. And that was unbecoming of a priest, apparently, back then. So he struggled with the hypocrisy of the church. But he found, obviously, his calling where he painted hundreds of these paintings, and like this Starry Night is actually priceless, and many of his, m- maybe all of his paintings are literally priceless. And he, uh, he painted just maybe for three years, and then he died very young. But this particular painting I love because, I don't know, I get this, uh, uh, it, it's called Starry Night, it's probably based off of Psalms, you know, the heavens declare his glory. If you look to the moon and the sun, You don't know if it's a moon or a sun, Uh, it could be both. So perhaps Van Gogh was signaling uh, just the the times that he was living in uh, because it was a tumultuous time in terms of uh, um, people's philosophy, right? The cypress tree on the left there, uh, in that region it represented death. But he used it here as a way to connect heaven and earth. Uh, To give us hope. And right in the middle of that, is a church. By the way, this was all imaginary, so some were saying maybe it's, it's the church where he grew up in, but notice the steeple, and uh, art experts have said that if you take out the church, the whole painting collapses, because that holds the center visually. But notice the homes around the church. The lights are on, the windows. The, the, the light is on, you can see the lights, but notice the windows of the church. Uh, There is no light. Perhaps Van Gogh was uh, telling us in his own way that uh, if the church's lights are out, then the church's influence will diminish at our peril. Um, So like Van Gogh, do we choose to participate as instigators, provocateurs, Or do we choose instead to inspire others to look beyond the issues? Do we retreat in defeat because we've been canceled? Or like Van Gogh, return and reflect on restoration and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus and declare the goodness of God and his gospel? Like Van Gogh, do we take seriously the charge to look for other ways to communicate the gospel in word and deed? to a world where Christianity's influence is diminished. Why don't we pray? Father, these things are hard. Sometimes we forget to go to you for help. So teach us, Lord, to pray, and teach us to be humble, and teach us to be kind in our speech, and encourage us knowing that we have everything that we need to uh, live godly lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com. to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry, send an email to scpodcast at southcliffe.com That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.